Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome everyone to Oki Investigations. My name is Trevor Shelby. I'm an Oklahoman who loves to investigate crimes that's happened in my state and across the United States. I have a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and a love for true crime. The stories that are featured on this show are true stories. The narrative of each story comes from extensive research through police reports, trial notes, appeals, personal counts, news reports, and much, much more. Parts of the story may contain opinions and speculations and should be taken as such. For more information on each story, join us on our webpage at truecrime.blog, where you'll see some of the cool things that we've gathered while researching this show. This can include a timeline of events, newspaper clippings, court documents, and just a whole lot more. Come and check us out at truecrime.blog and join us on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Investigations. These stories depict violent crimes of all types and may be a trigger for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whenever you're listening. Welcome to the show. Today... We will uncover a shocking story that took place about 112 years ago in Brownsville, New York. The criminal justice system was a lot less complicated back then, and it was not always a good thing. As the story unfolds, you may start to learn why there are so many like checks and balances in the system today. Our current criminal justice methods are far from perfect which is why there's so much room for reform. But we must also look to the past to see where things didn't always go to plan. So, with that being said, this is our story. On April 3rd, 1908, Patrick Brennan was headed home from a long day of working at the Remington Mill. He was sore, tired, and just ready to be home. As he walked up to his house, he reached above the front door where they kept a spare key, but it was missing. This was not totally unexpected. You see, Patrick and his wife Sarah have been fighting for quite some time now. This is not the first time he's found it hard to get inside of his home. Luckily, he started keeping a spare key in the shed out back. If his wife Sarah had forgotten that one, he would be able to get into the house. 
As he walked out back, Patrick noticed his neighbor, James Farmer, watching him. Patrick waved, but James didn't return the wave, not really caring. Patrick entered the shed, lifted the old box where he's hid the spare key, and it too was also missing. Patrick just, you know, shook his head and returned to the front door. He knocked and knocked, but no one would answer. Now, having gone through this before, Patrick decided that he would get into the house the only way that he knew would 100% work. They had a window upstairs that had a broken latch, and there was really no way to secure it. So Patrick again returned to his shed and then pulled out a ladder. As he did so, he again noticed his neighbor James. This time James was walking up the walkway just a few feet away. This was also not wholly unexpected. The farmers were good friends of Patrick and Sarah's. They had become pretty close since the farmer family moved in the run-down house next door. If there was trouble at the home, Sarah probably told the farmers about it. The two greeted one another, and James told Patrick that Sarah's left town went to stay with relatives. Patrick knew things were terrible between them, but not this bad. Then James told Patrick something that it looked like he was almost afraid to say to him. He said that months back, Sarah and his wife Mary Farmer had worked out a deal on the sale of the house. The deed had been transferred, and the agreement was now complete. Patrick was now pretty much homeless. After recovering from this shock of being told that not only has your wife left you, but she also sold the house out from underneath you, Patrick then started to question a few things. Yes, why didn't anyone even just tell him about it? Why didn't his wife or James himself just come and say something? He started to question if any of this was even real. James told Patrick that everything was on the up and up, and if he wanted to review the deed transfer, he could at the county office. It had already been filed. Patrick was then asked to leave the property. Uh, grudgingly, he did so, and Patrick decided to stay at the local inn while he was kind of clearing his head and trying to figure out what to do next. The first thing he really started doing was writing to all of Sarah's relatives who might know where she was staying. Over the next few days, he returned to his old home to ask the farmer family if they knew where his wife might have gone. Each time he returned, James and Mary would give him a slightly different story. Each time it made it sound like it was harder and harder to find his wife. They finally told him that Sarah told them that she was moving to Canada and Patrick would just never see her again. Now keep in mind, Patrick and Sarah had been married for 25 years. So this was a big change. The next day, Patrick was served with an eviction notice that required him to stay away from the home. It was clear that the farmers were done with all of Patrick's questioning. So at the advice of a friend, Patrick sought out a lawyer in town that might be able to help him with his troubles. He spoke with attorney Floyd Carisle. 
Now, one of the areas that Mr. Carl specialized in was home and property law. So the first thing that he did was get an accurate description of Sarah Brennan. And then he went down to the county records office and looked at the deed transfer of the property. Everything was in order. It looked like Sarah had used another attorney in town, Mr. Burns, and they had transferred the deed into the farmer's names. Back then, when a deed was transferred, they would also note down the description of the person who came in to do so. Very little was put down about Sarah, but what was written down didn't resemble Sarah at all. So at once, Attorney Carl went to the inn where Patrick had been staying. He showed Patrick the copy of the transfer and asked about the description. And Patrick said that that was not his wife, but it sounded a lot more like it resembled Miss Mary Farmer. Then they both started to put together some of the pieces that kind of fit together here. Although Patrick and his wife had been fighting, this was nothing new, and they would have moved on from their problems. They loved one another, and after 25 years of marriage, they had no secrets. This is why it's so hard to believe that Sarah could or would keep the idea of selling the home a secret, just to take the money and run. They loved their home and planned on staying there for the rest of their days. None of the stories that the farmers had told him so far made any sense, and it seemed like they were hiding something. This is also what Attorney Carl believed as well. He also feared that something awful had happened to Sarah, something that Patrick had not yet considered. They both decided to speak to the county attorney, Mr. Pritcher, to see what they could do. After reciting what had happened so far, they set a meeting that soon involved the police as well. They all decided that on the next day, they would all meet at the farmer residence, formerly Patrick's home, and then the police would conduct a search to see if there was anything out of place that might explain the disappearance of Sarah Brennan. The next day, everyone arrived at the same time at the farmer's new home. The police knocked on the door to find both James and Mary in the house, currently moving in. The police let them know that they were there to conduct a search of the home. James didn't really seem to mind, but Mary seemed a little nervous. Room by room, each area was searched. The one thing they noted down was that it was odd that all of Sarah's belongings were still in the home. Her dresses, clothing, luggage were all there. If she were leaving, she would have taken those with her. Besides that, they didn't really find anything else. Upstairs, one of the officers asked for some help. He found a large trunk in one of the back rooms. And it was a room that was being used for storage. The thing that kind of alerted the officer was that it had an odd smell and it was locked. When asked for the key, the farmer stated they had lost it long ago. The officer then went out and retrieved an axe. When he returned, he immediately started to break into the trunk. 
As he did so, a horrible smell filled the room. When the lid was opened, they found Miss Sarah Brennan chopped up and squeezed into the trunk. Right away, James Brennan denied knowing anything was in the trunk. He then looked to Mary, who looked panic-stricken. She began to blame James for the murder, but as almost as soon as she said it, she seemed to have regretted it, and then confessed that she had been plotting this all along, and that her husband, he didn't know anything about the murder. Both Mary and James were arrested on the spot and brought to the jail. James kept quiet and refused to answer any questions. He acted as if he didn't really know what was happening, and he was afraid to say anything at this point. However, Mary had a lot to say. She immediately confessed to what had happened and why she killed Sarah. Mary told the officers that they had lived next to one another for years now, and that over the last few months, she started coming up with this plan on how to steal the neighbor's house. One day when both of the Brennans were out of their home, Mary creeped down and used one of the keys that they kept outside to enter their home. She rummaged through their house and found the deed within minutes. She then went down and pretended to be Sarah and went to an attorney who didn't know either of them to make the transfer. She then waited several months to make sure that the transfer wasn't contested or anything like that. But this is where her plan kind of went sideways. How do you evict someone who thinks that they own their own home? Once they find out the deed was transferred, they could just easily report her and have her arrested. So when Mary saw that Mr. and Mrs. Brennan were fighting, she decided to hatch another plan. If she could get rid of Sarah, she could claim that the house was bought and Sarah left her husband. She then went to the Brennan home, killed Sarah, cut her up, and placed her in the trunk. The body of Miss Sarah Brennan was sent to the county coroner's office, and they immediately began to assemble a coroner jury to see what had happened to Sarah. Now, if you're a first-time listener and you don't know what a coroner jury is, don't worry, we got you on that one. This is a special jury of medical professionals that serve their local area with these types of cases. They would all help with the autopsy, and they would each come to their own conclusion on what happened and how that person died. This is a way to make sure that not one doctor was siding with either side in the case, and that their findings would be 100% unbiased. Much like a regular jury, kind of that same idea. Sometimes the coroner's jury would go as far as to like make a verdict that not only listed how the person died, but who was responsible. They had access to all the same evidence, so they knew all the facts in the case. So in this case, they found that Mary Farmer had struck Sarah Brennan on the head with an axe. This instantly killed Sarah, and she likely did not feel much pain. 
they handed this information over to the authorities to decide if they would indict the farmers on murder or not. Taking this information, the county attorney had no trouble indicting both James and Mary for the murder of Sarah Brennan. As with many cases at the time, the trial for Mary Farmer began quickly. On June 10, 1908, Mary Farmer's defense was that she was insane. The state had her examined and they found her fit to stand trial, but that didn't really stop them from bringing in several people from Mary's past to talk about how she was and how the person that they knew wouldn't have killed anyone. A former employer actually provided very unhelpful testimony. The defense thought that they would state that Mary was an average person and would also say they couldn't believe that she would have killed someone, but instead they just said they were a good employee, and that was really just about that. They didn't know her personally. James's sister testified that she was given the deed to file with the county, and she knew that it was Mary's signature on the form and not Sarah's when she looked at it but she decided not to say anything about it at the time. On the day of the murder, her brother James was helping a person named Doran, and she was over there as well, and she said that Mary had come over and told James he had to tell Patrick today that he was no longer the owner of his home and that his wife had left him. The trial went for 10 days. The jury received the case. They spent three hours deliberating and came back with a verdict. Guilty. They affixed death as the sentence. At this point in history, Mary Farmer was scheduled to be the second person to be put to death by an electric chair in the state of New York. Now... James Farmer's trial was just a little different. He claimed he knew nothing about the murder, he believed his wife had done it, and that he had no hand in it. He wasn't going to claim that he was insane or anything like that. Instead, he would just try to prove that he wasn't present at the time of the murder. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. On the day of the murder, James went to his friend's house, who lives just on the other side of him. This was Doran. Doran and James planned on working on a cement walkway that morning. Doran even testified that James arrived 20 minutes before 9 and thought the 
and it was thought that the murder was committed around 9.30 that morning. So if James was with Doran, there was no way he had an active hand in the murder. The state, however, brought witnesses forward that directly contradicted Doran's statements. Several witnesses claimed they saw James return home several times that day. They also questioned how James could not have known that something was up. Even if Mary came up with a reasonable excuse on how she got the money to buy the home, how did he not think that it was odd that Mary would leave a 25-year marriage with just no prior warning? Just like in Mary's case, the jury received the case after about 10 days of trial, and they deliberated for three hours. James was found guilty of murder and was given the death sentence. This was kind of interesting because if you think about it, this is one of, in, in history, this is one of the first times you've got a couple on death row, uh, both looking at the electric chair as their death sentence. Pretty, pretty crazy stuff. Mary immediately appealed her case and also asked the governor to step in and reduce her sentence to life in prison. But each time her pleas fell on deaf ears, she had to be given a special cell on death row. She had to be out of ear and eye shot of the male prisoners. She was attended to by special female staff, and James was actually housed at a separate prison over at Sing Sing, so they could not see one of another. Mary's execution date was set for March 29, 1909. Her attorney made special appointments with the governor to reassess the case and perhaps give Mary life in prison instead. When he arrived at the meeting, the attorney brought several people who knew Miss Farmer and throughout her life. And they all told about how she was a good person. They tried to convince the governor that there was something else going on here. And Mary was not acting in her right mind when this murder was committed. The governor told them he would think about it. But as the March 29th date grew nearer, he announced he would not step in. He actually took like a half-page advertisement out in like the New York Times or the, a, a paper similar. I don't remember which. And it basically broke down that he's not going to step into this case. Um, and there was a similar case uh, way back when that like Teddy Roosevelt could have stepped in. And that really set the, the precedence that he should not step in as well. On March 29th, the day of the execution, Mary was permitted some time she could spend with her husband. It was said by the priest who attended this meeting that the two at first were kind of standoffish, but they soon were able to talk to one another and give their goodbyes. It was there that Mary Farmer gave the priest a note, which was a full confession to the crime. Mary Farmer walked into the death chamber later on that day, head shaved, ready for the end. She gave her last words to the crowd, to the thoughts of her husband, and how it made her sad to see him on death row because he had nothing to do with the murder. 
and that it was all her. She then sat in the chair, and they began strapping her down and attaching the electrodes. At 6.05 p.m., they flipped the switch for one minute. 1,840 volts of electricity was applied. When they stopped, Mary let out a small whimper and a moan. The doctors found her to still be alive. They then began to electrocute her once again, just for a few seconds this time. After they stopped, the doctors checked again, and they weren't quite sure, so they had them flip the switch one more time. After this, they pronounced her dead. Now, after the execution, the prison doctor told the crowd that Mary was dead after the first shock. But many people didn't believe this, having seen the actions firsthand. And also, this is kind of sad. Remember, James had been moved to the same death row as his wife. He knew the exact moment that they were killing her. During this time, it was said that James spent the entire time praying for his wife and her soul. Even though Mary was seen as a killer and someone who was not able to be trusted, her last words carried a lot of weight. James successfully appealed his sentence and was awarded a new trial. This time around, things seemed just a little different and they were able to use the confession of Mary as proof that James had nothing to do with the actual murder. The jury responded to all this new evidence, and they found James not guilty of Sarah's murder. It is hard for me to say one way or the other on what I believe happened for real in this case. My biggest question in all of this is, is did James have like any hand in Sarah's murder. I mean, I, I don't think he was there for the actual killing. I don't believe that. But I have to believe that he had to suspect something was going on. When the deed was transferred, how could he just accept that his wife made the purchase of that size with like, I don't know, magical money from a long lost relative? or just accept the disappearance of Sarah? It's hard for me to believe that he had nothing to do with any of it. It must have been hard for Patrick to see James walk out a free man. I know it had been hard for me. But what do you guys think? Do you think James had anything to do with uh, Sarah's disappearance? Did he perhaps help plot all of this, or... Do you think he had a hand in the actual murder? Let's know over on our Facebook page. Uh, you'll see this actual article posted on there. And yeah, you can respond there or you can jump over to truecrime.blog uh, where this whole story is posted along with news articles and the appeals that we actually were able to find. And you can, uh, after digging through all that stuff, you can reply to the actual blog post itself there too. It's a lot of fun interacting with all of you. Anyways, guys, it's been a lot of fun, but I've got to go. There's a lot of things to get done today. So I'll see you all next time. See ya.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.